Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Ian Miller, lecturer in medical history at Ulster University and researcher on the Epidemic Belfast projects. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map changing experiences of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. Today, we're talking to Tom Thorpe, uh, independent scholar and tour guide, about his research into Campbell College in Belfast. Um, hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Can you start maybe by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in infection, health and schools in the Edwardian period? Yeah, yeah thanks, Ian. Um, as as um, you may know, I was uh, the archivist at Campbell College for uh, a period during uh, 2017 to 2019, working on a project looking at uh, the old boys or old Campbellians who um, fought in the First World War and uh, unfortunately died. And a lot of that was around building uh, a website up about those individuals and, and telling their story. But some of the work I, I did there was to look at, you know, Campbell College during the war and, and what happened to the boys and obviously what happened before the war. And it got me really interested in this sort of uh, idea of health and, and infection. Obviously, you've got lots of diseases during the Edwardian period, such as mumps, measles, scarletina or scarlet fever, which were prevalent amongst uh, the youth uh, of that time. And, you know, infectious diseases that we take you know, for granted today, not being a major problem, were indeed something which was a, a significant health issue at the time. And I got interested in how the school was managing this idea, but also the broader idea of health uh, as, as well. But also I did some work on looking at Campbell College and, and comparing it to national schools at the time and seeing the, the tremendous diversity in, in the way that this issue was approached in both sectors, both groups of schools. So we're going to talk about your research in two parts today. And the first part will explore how schools sought to protect and maintain the health of their pupils. And the second will look at the role of health and physical exercise in school life and educational activities. To give a bit of background, can you outline the nature, extent and size of the primary and secondary school system in Edwardian Belfast in the period just leading up to the Great War? Yes, I mean, but if we look at sort of the metropolitan area of what we say is to Belfast today, it uh, was a, an area which um, around 350,000 people lived. Uh, that's from the 1911 census. And when you look at um, sort of reports from education inspectors at the time, they divided Belfast into two areas and roughly around 400, uh, probably 410 schools uh, existed in the area. And they were probably 380, maybe 390 national schools. These were um, state funded schools where um, people or the populace would largely send their, their their children they were predominantly from the urban working classes and people would kids were uh, obliged to attend there up until about the age of 12 and some schools they stayed on it up to 16 but that was relatively rare uh, and majority sort of left at 12 and to work in the uh, industries of Belfast, notably the textile mills, and you have something called half-timers. These kids, and this is an intermediate zone where they um, go to the factory half-time and are educated for half-time. So and you could get kids as young as three entering some of these schools. Um, that a lot of parents actually use them as creches because they were obviously having to work. You didn't work, you didn't get paid, and you ended up in the workhouse. So they were sort of places where kids would be deposited for partly for um, childcare, but also for education. So that was one side. That's, that's where the majority of people would have sent their children. But for the urban 
middle class elites that you would have sent your child to some places like Methody College, installed with the Royal Academical Institution or Campbell College, Belfast or uh, Victoria College if you had a daughter and you wanted to uh, educate. All those schools are today still educating the elite of Belfast and they exist and many of them are, are really very, very good. So that's the school system you've got in 1911. School children, probably around 56,000 um, in within national schools and maybe two to 3,000 in the uh, private sector. Perhaps on that note, could you maybe give us a, a little, little bit more background on Campbell College, particularly for people who may not be familiar with the college and before World War II? Yeah, Campbell College is, is today, it's a Schedule B grammar school. It's an all-boys school uh, located in East Belfast. It was set up in 1894 as a boarding school for the elites of Belfast, middle-class elite. So it was, a, it was a school which was set up to deliver, quote, a superior liberal Protestant education. So essentially it served the business and professional classes of the people who, who uh, were doctors, lawyers, businessmen, linen merchants and, and things like that. And it was set up by um, executives of Henry Campbell who uh, left the bequest to the school and hence it was constructed. So it was, it was a very large school and then it eventually reverts to being a state funded school but uh, has some private elements and it has a very large estate and looks very much like a sort of a, a, a Bordeaux Chateau, which would have its own wine label. That does sound very nice. Am I right in thinking that Samuel Beckett had some kind of connection to Campbell College? Yes, you are. Um, he was a, a French teacher in the 1920s, I think it was 1928. Now, Samuel Beckett um, was, I don't know, he's, he was, this was before he became a famous playwright and um, wrote all his uh, amazing uh, plays and things like that. And he was a French teacher, but he only served there for a very short time. And the story goes for his leaving. I mean, he, he apparently approached a headmaster and he was about to leave. And the headmaster was not very, um, was not particularly enamoured with this decision, you know. But Mr. Beckett, so the story goes, this is where the cream of Ulster society comes, to which Beckett replied, yes, rich and thick. So it had a relatively poor um, reflection uh, about its clientele. And I, I think that's somewhat unfair. But I have to say that uh, story is actually in the official history of the school. So it's not me just being, being rude. Um, and that sort of stayed with them ever since. And I think it's certainly unfair from my experience of the school. In other podcast episodes, we've talked about the period around 1900 as one in which doctors are beginning to understand germs, even though they can't cure diseases, and public health is becoming a major concern and activity. So stemming from that, I wondered what the roles of schools was uh, in maintaining the health of their pupils within that context. I think it's, it's really interesting. You, you get this sort of, um, you're right, coming out of the end of the Boer War. Again, I think there's, there's two, two dimensions here. You get this sort of scientific discoveries of disease and illness and people beginning to find cures for often commonly transmitted diseases. But also you get sort of a national obsession around 1890s, 1900s, around ideas of health and what that means. Um, and this, this sort of partly comes out, this is my interest in, in this area. And if you look at the end of the Boer War, um, Britain fights a war in South Africa against the Dutch Boer community. Um, don't need to go into why it happened, but essentially this lasts for three years from 1899 to 1902. And the British Army is triumphant, but it's the performance of the British Empire within this context is seen as appalling. And, you know, it's fighting a bunch of Dutch farmers and it, and it takes so long to defeat them. And there's a sort of a sense of national paranoia that emerges in some quarters and part of this is fueled by 
the state and health of the soldiers who join up to fight in the Boer War. For instance, there's one survey in Manchester, probably the most famous one, where it looked at the health of volunteers between, I think it was June and October, part of 1899 certainly and it suggested that of the 12,000 recruits or so I need to double check my figures around two-thirds were, were classified as quotes virtually invalids so people not meeting the basic health standards for soldiers you know they didn't have teeth or they were physically uh, weak and a lot of people saw this related to um, obviously poverty and you see this with a number of people like Charles Booth, who, who in the 1890s produces the Survey of London, which catalogues, you know, that a lot of people in working class districts are suffering from great poverty, poor nutrition, long working hours and bad overall health. And this is replicated in um, the Boer War. You know, people join up to fight for, for king and country, but they can't because they're seen as not particularly fit. When you look at the Boers, who uh, were fit, healthy, outdoor types, you know, they were they could shoot anything. They lived off the land. They had this sort of rural little, obviously many of them, not all by, by all means. So you get this sort of paranoia that this is the idea that the empire, the racial stock of the empire is declining. So you get this sort of thrust on looking at health. And this becomes, I think, I suppose, shown in two areas. It's shown in firstly, a desire to protect the health or try and protect the health of children in school from a lot of uh, uh, common diseases, but also try and improve their health through physical education and uh, such other me methods is part of their education so that they they might be better soldiers uh, when, when they come uh, if another situation arises and obviously this sort of idea of imperial competition with a resurgent Germany building a navy um, there was almost a war with France in 1898 over the Fashoda incident and you get this sort of um, idea that to, to, to fight and, and to compete in this sort of social Darwinist context the working classes of Britain need to be fitter and healthier and, it, and especially the children of the working classes need to be fitter and healthier so that was really my interest it's sort of the background that I came to this subject in and that's why I was interested in both the health elements in schools but also how schools sought to protect uh, children from disease. What do you mean when you talk about maintaining the pupils health? Well, I, in this context, I'm interested in how schools sought to protect their pupils from disease, infection and prevention of sort of ill health. And that was really my uh, interest. You know, how would you how do you prevent your, your pupils being infected with measles, mumps uh, and diphtheria and scarlet fever? That was really my uh, interest in this area, because obviously these diseases can have, you know, dire health impacts, uh, not only for the individuals, but, but later in life. What, what was the situation in public schools? Public schools is, is really interesting. Um, looking at, for instance, Campbell College, which is the, the school I'm most familiar with, C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples Lewis, was a pupil there, uh, briefly attended, and he had, he suffered actually from quite significant ill health in his early uh, early days. And health in the school was really, really important. And, you know, it's always thought that the, these things sometimes didn't affect the children of the elites, and they certainly did. You know, if you look at... Um, Campbell College 1899 it suffers an outbreak of scarlet fever and it's forced to close for two months uh, while the whole school is disinfected and now this this is this is appalling for a school like Campbell for two reasons firstly it it damages their attitude or damages their reputation with parents and secondly it shuts off a, a, a revenue stream obviously if you've got no children in the school you can't charge parents to educate them so this caused significant concern in the hospital and they actually expanded their sanatorium in the in the uh, hospital there is a building uh, to the east of the campus which was a sanatorium it's now a private ho uh, 
house and it was uh, enlarged quotes as a hospital for scarlatina cases that's scarlet fever at the cost of two thousand pounds even so 1900 nine pupils were housed in the sanatorium uh, with that disease so you know it becomes this problem is not just related to scarlet fever. In 1905, 14, 40 pupils go down with mumps. And it gets so serious that the headmaster at the time, McNeil, uh, James McNeil, he says he's reported to say parents were growing, parents were showing uneasiness with the regard to the outbreak of, quote, spotted fever uh, in 1907. So it becomes a really big issue then. And you, you can see this concern still continues with uh, parents even into 1911. Some of the marketing materials the school produces to um, advertise the school. You know, for instance, the 1911 prospectus declares that the school pays special attention to the health of boarders. There is a medical officer who visits the school daily and each boarder at the school is subjected to a careful and exhaustive medical examination, which is recorded for future reference. So essentially you see that the school is, is, is interested in, in, a, in a child's health. 1913 the prospectus is further developed um, and it states that the school's food supply is under the supervision of a medical officer and there's actually a screening form in the back of the um, uh, prospectus to ask whether a, a child has had whooping cough, chicken pox, measles, German measles, mumps, ringworm, scarlet fever or smallpox. So this is this is really interesting. Um, so the school takes this really, really seriously. Now, something I did discover, which was, which again was really interesting, that the um, public health officer, Dr. Bailey, who delivers a very interesting report in 1913 about the state of public health in the, in the city, sends his son Herbert to Campbell College in January 1920. So that that that's you know how these schools take it. They take it really, really seriously because this was a problem and a, an issue that that pupils died with. When you look through the school magazine, there's sometimes these little black, black rectangles where a child has died. For instance, Alexander Thompson in 1911 was obliged to leave the school because he was showing signs of scarlet fever and unfortunately died two years later in March 1913. So this was a problem that, that even elite schools had to cope with. It's like the elite schools were, were very good at looking after themselves and with with their own sanatorium and, and actually getting a meal at school during the day. But I wondered what the situation was like maybe in Belfast National Schools. It, well, I mean, there's a, a completely different uh, situation in national schools. And it is, it's, it's anyway, it is scandalous, but it's hardly surprising. Now, the source I used for this was, was were a number of inspection reports from the Commission on National Education. They actually had inspectors who went around schools in Ireland and all these reports on the, uh, I think it's a Wellcome Trust, and they, they list an area, for instance, Belfast, it has two circuits. Um, and these circuits, and, and they sort of go around schools and, and they comment on how the children are doing on arithmetic and things like that. But they also, you know, refer to the state of the health of the schools. And it's, it's a really fascinating report. It's 1908, Mr Mangan reported that he saw that pupils, as a, as a rule, were well-fed and healthy. Six years later, another uh, uh, inspector concluded, pupils on the whole seem robust, wonderfully so, considering some of their lives. However, the same inspector noted in schools which touched the lower social watermark, they naturally appear degenerate. And I think this, this you know, shows that health in schools and national schools was very variable. Some of the rural, more rural schools in the outskirts of Belfast had very different uh, situations compared to the inner city schools. And not all schools, not all national schools um, were the same. They, they had very variable sort of health. And this is reflected in, in the issues or the health issues that these can, these 
inspectors picked up. For instance, they note there were frequent epidemics of scarlatina, whooping cough, diphtheria, and measles. These were, quotes rife. And, they, and the impact of this is that many schools often needed to be closed uh, for long periods of times to be disinfected. So, you know, schools disinfected them, and if the children weren't in schools, they were often on the streets not being educated. This problem was accelerated uh, by the fact that many schools were, quotes overcrowded and you know there's a very crude sort of measurement is used in a number of schools to measure the surface area uh, the school's area and actually the number of pupils in there I think they said they were allowed nine square feet and so they they, they worked out the overcrowding that some of these estates um, or these schools or school estate rather some of these schools actually had you know considerably more pupils than were actually they were designed for and they did no notice other issues health issues for instance Mr. Kelly noticed in 1908 that one school reported no toilet. In another school he visited five months previously, he found the same piece of soap in the bathroom, which he believed demonstrated, quotes, a phenomenon which is, is to be explained by some other theory than the indestructibility of matter. And another challenge they, they highlight was the oral health of children. Most children reported defective teeth, and this was common in city schools. One examination by an expert, whoever that may be, in 1930-1940, of nearly 200 children between age between 6 and 10 found that five, only 5% five were free of any defects. Now again, remember that many people joining up, joining the army during the Boer War had been reported with pure dental health. If you can't, if you don't have good dental health, you can't eat uh, tough army biscuits, and this means you become a casualty. So that's why dental health is so important to uh, the military. So that's the situation in national schools. Well, it sounds like you were certainly better off in, in the elite classes, but, but why was there such a disparity in provision? I think this is really, really interesting. I think there were obviously attempts by schools to do things. And for instance, there's a, a, a dental clinic opened in the Otto Jaff National School, which is used by a number of, of um, people. A number of schools go there to have their thing. And, there, you know, there was a inspections occasionally and there was progress in areas but it's it's really interesting why i mean obviously one can say that they, it was a hierarchical society based on class um, and you know if you were in a public school you had significantly more resources uh, than you do in the national schools i think you could defend the corporation or the corporation of belfast in that you've got population massively expanding over the latter parts of the 1890s and 1900 you know the, the population of belfast i think rises by nearly 50 percent between 1875 and 1911 you know it's, it's a huge expansion and you've got to therefore cater for these children and you're trying to do this on a school estate which is in the middle of you know say west belfast surrounded by factories you've got very little room to expand so you you know, partly you can defend their failure in, in that sense. Um, but also you've got to look at contemporary attitudes of people as well. You know, there's, there's it's sort of, I think, an assumption that disease is part of being working class and you get a number of derogatory quotes by people. There's one really, really interesting one that comes from a guy called Eric Robertson Dobbs, Dodds. He was at Campbell College during uh, 1908 to 1912. He's eventually expelled for being rude to the headmaster. And he goes on to be uh, a very famous academic in uh, Oxford, Cambridge, a Greek and classical scholar. scholar. Now, he claims at, uh, at Campbell College at the time that he was, quotes, a socialist. He went on to become a conscientious objector. He uh, supported the Easter Rising and he generally took a pretty dim view of the empire and things like that but he actually you know puts in his uh memoir in 1977 that he didn't take 
uh, books in the public library for these because these were for the working classes and something that you would get disease from. So even though he was on a scholarship at Campbell College, his parents uh, were, were teachers themselves. He had a pretty derogatory attitude towards the working classes, even though he claimed to be a socialist. So that generates some of the, the attitudes at the time. The other issue, I think, you know, comes from that, you know, it, it was that schools were meant to be this sort of moral force that can actually help the working classes get better. For instance, you have a report by Mr. P.J. Kelly in 1908, which drew attention to the dirty state of some pupils in the poorer quarters of the city. And he thought that the best way to influence the home life of such children was through the medium of the school. If they, the children, do not come clean to school, they should be required to wash themselves in the premises until cleanliness becomes a habit. Quote, apart from the hygienic aspects of the question, the value of soap and water as a civilising agency is not to be despised. The boy who has learned to keep himself clean has ascended a step in the ladder of self-respect. And that sort of attitude comes from one of the inspectors. Many of them note, you know, that these kids are in poverty and it's not their fault. But you also get this other um, attitude as well. So in many ways, what's fascinating is that you have at the beginning of the 19th century, this moral panic around the state of disease and the working classes. But even by the outbreak of the First World War, very little is done uh, in Belfast and probably many other cities to improve the um, physical health of, of the children who are meant to be fighting for the future of the empire. Okay, the second part of your interview will explore the role of health and physical exercise in school life and curriculum. So why did you become interested in this subject? This is very much focused on, you know, the reports that come out after the Boer War about, for instance, you've got the Interdepartmental Committee on Degeneration or the apparent degeneration of the working classes. And this idea that physical exercise is a way of actually improving the health of um, working class kids. You see, 1906, for instance, the Boy Scout movement is created, and, and a big element of that is about getting kids into the outdoors, making sure that they're having um, a wholesome life, uh, physical exercise. And this has this sort of idea of this sort of moral quality as well, you know, producing the, the ideal uh, citizen of the empire. And that, that's what got me going because what, that's what got me interested because it sort of replicates sort of the vision that many public schools had about the role of physical exercise and in the health and well-being of their students. There's a, a huge class dimension to this, isn't there, though, of course, with the public schools and the kind of history in Britain, at least, of kind of muscular Christianity and, and, and kind of playing rugby. So I wondered if you could just return to the issue of class again. What, what was the role of health and physical exercise in public schools? I think you're, you're really right. Uh, I think, you know, that you do get this idea of, of um, that physical education in public schools is critical uh, to the development of the individual or the boy uh, to make them a man. And this is this comes out in Campbell College. It's really interesting. Now, the headmaster, McNeil, dies in 1907 and he's replaced by a headmaster called Robert McFarland. And McFarland had been at Repton, which is a public school in England, and he comes into Campbell College and he says, the English, the English way of doing things is this sort of trinity of character physical exercise and mental development. And he wants to bring this British or English method into Campbell College to make it um, great, you know, because the Irish system is about 
qualifications and academics. It's not so much about um, this sort of physical exercise and development of character. Now, the role of physical exercise and character, and character is a rather nebulous public school idea, but I think it means that they're an upright system making the right decisions and that they have this sort of moral centre, and, you know, by which means they could be Christian gentlemen and uh, be, you know, take their position within the hierarchical nature of Edwardian society. And physical exercise was seen as very much developing this character. And he did this in a number of ways. I mean, this isn't particularly new to Irish public schools. And McFarlane saying that this was unique, I think, is a bit of a bit cheap, but it's a, a good marketing ploy. But you get it very much in English public schools. But the idea of character that, you know, if you're doing manly rugby, you, a, you become a man because you're doing things, but you also learn teamwork. You learn uh, working together. You learn this sort of esprit de corps, this sort of idea of collective loyalty to, to the, the group. You also learn, you know, to be physically active, and that's good for your own mental development. And you also learn, you know, to deal with pain, to, to work together, to put the, the group's needs above yours. And, you know, this is seen as, as, a, as a really key element of building this sort of public character and you know there's one quote from a, a guy called Henry Crone who becomes a well-known medieval historian and he attended uh, Campbell in 19, from about 1917 to 1921 and he quotes said he thought that uh, Mac, that uh, McFarlane thought that uh, Rugger was for the service of the empire you know this whole sort of idea that by doing these sports you make a better man um, and it's all very much tied up with this ideology and this sort of the idea that you know you don't just want uh, to do develop the brain you want to develop the the individual so it's very much that and what's very fascinating is that Dobbs who I mentioned earlier in the podcast plays in the rugby team in 1912 and absolutely loves all this sort of thing he fights he he says he works harder on being in the, in the rugby team than he does on, on his Latin grammar you know and it's all he he absorbs his whole culture even though he's against the empire, against this sort of McFarlane, he finds McFarlane as an appalling individual. So it's it's absolutely fascinating that it becomes part of that incorporating ideology. Sounds like a very nice world of rugby and, and masculinity, but of course the situation was very different in national schools. And of course in national schools there was female as well as male pupils, so I wondered if you could comment on the situation and the role of health and physical exercise in those institutions. It's, it's really interesting. I think you see, uh, for instance, in 1898, there's something called the report or the final report of the, uh, of the inquiry into manual and practical instruction in primary schools. This was a, um, a survey or recommendations of a sort of think tank of expertise who were coming forward to think about, well, what's the purpose of, of education? And they tie education very much into an occupational function. Um, and they were they were very much saying that, you know, quotes, as the bulk of pupils attending primary schools under the national board, that is national schools, will have to earn their bread by the work of their hands. And it is therefore important that they should be trained from the beginning to use their hands with dexterity and intelligence. So therefore, education takes a, a way of actually it becomes very much more about making them to um, be to, to engage in work that they will do in their lives so it's in a way it has an occupational function very much very similar to what the public schools were doing and physical education in drill has a role in this you know um it says that it, it, this is beneficial to character in national school children but also it's it helps helps them uh, get trained in in jobs that they're going to be doing if they're going to be doing um largely physical work it's useful that they actually uh, have training quotes um it's desirable that they uh, they, they have 
occupational training. For instance, the one report says this is especially desirable in towns where bodily training in games, garden work and outdoor occupations was lacking. Now, part of the problem it was lacking that many public, many national schools in Belfast didn't have playgrounds. You know, they had very, very little outdoor space and that children were having to be taught in, indoors for the majority of the time. There were no places where kids could actually go and exercise. So the, the problem that a lot of inspectors find is that, you know, the, these these various schemes for exercise and um, physical exercise that are put into these reports and you know another one in 1909 which you know lists a whole load of exercises and Swedish drill which is all this sort of um, thing you see soldiers doing in sort of long lines and doing star jumps and stuff it has all these wonderful ideas and they they, they say this has a health benefit as well you know this is something which will be good for the help in the production and maintenance of health in body and mind but there's very very little progress on this mainly because there's no physical infrastructure in schools there are very very few playgrounds and actually you know people aren't really that interested it's it's a lot of talk but very little action tom we've talked a lot about the the training goals of boys uh, often for military purposes, was it much interest in the education of girls and their physical health in the schools at the time? It's really interesting. I, I looked at, you know, the purpose of education and it, it becomes, uh, certainly when you look at the, the 1909 um, publication, which is, is produced by, I think it's an Eng one of the uh, departments of education in England or the equivalent, there are exercises for girls as well. You know, this is seen very much as um, what they would do they all sort of you see them in their school uniform doing mocking up these sort of photographs and I think it was seen as a positive benefit but from what I got from the 1898 report into manual and practical instruction girls were seen you know to be very much tra being trained to follow sort of gender appropriate roles you know doing cooking uh doing knitting sewing needlework for instance go, they're probably going into domestic service which was a major major employer of many many uh girls and women during the edwardian period if anything you're seeing a rise in domestic service in belfast and the other place where they will probably go and many did unfortunately is into the mills you know because obviously that was female predominantly female uh, in that and many of them you know many teachers lament the fact that all these girls go to the mills on half time you know, and they leave school at age 12 with a very minimal education because that's the only way that their parents can survive. They are an economic asset to their parents. And if you're in a house of five or six people, you can't afford to be carrying uh, unproductive bodies, which is, seems rather brutal. But, you know, these people were living on the breadline and it was really important that they got their kids into school and sorry, into work as soon as possible because they were they, they earned money, even be it a small amount. So, yes, there was a, a focus on on physical exercise for girls, but it was seen very much as a, a context, you know, they were following largely gender roles. Obviously we're dealing with a very um, reactionary society in terms of, of what people were meant to be. So so why did Campbell College become a hospital? I was um, briefly uh, from 2017 to 2019, the archivist at Campbell College, and I was on a project looking at the uh, number of old boys or old Campbellians who died in the First World War. And I got very interested in the role of the school in the Second World War. Um, for instance, there are a number of Second World War bunkers in the school, which uh, it is aiming to excavate one day, and also a very large war memorial to, you know, 120 odd um, old boys who died during the Second World War. And it's a story that's not really known as well. So that's, that sort of sort of drew me to that. And then I, I found out that the school was actually a military hospital during the Second World War. It's, it's a really interesting story. I think um, the reason being uh, that, that, you know, the War Office was obviously looking to create medical facilities outside southeast London, probably outside the range of uh, air attack. 
and they pit on Campbell College and it offered a number of advantages. Firstly, it was a, it's a huge estate. If you go onto it today, it's got some lovely tree-lined avenues, uh, playing fields, and it had a number of satellite buildings, or sort of former homes of uh, the great and the good that Campbell College bought up, uh, such as Netherfield, Netherlee, sorry, and Cab um, and Cabin Hill. And these were all estates built by various uh, worthies during the 19th century, which the school eventually used uh, for various um, other functions. For instance, you'd have a, a, a prep school in Cabin Hill, uh, and that was a function. And so the war office comes here and they see this amazing estate. It's got this sort of purpose-built um, satellites that they can use. It's got eight acres of space to expand into. And also it's outside the centre of Belfast. Obviously uh, the fear that a lot of military planners had that Belfast would become a target because it obviously had a docks and a, and a lot of industrial, military industrial work in terms of the linen works, uh, producing the uniforms, shipyards obviously producing warships, and it was suitably far out of the city to uh, not be a target in any uh, air attack. And also it was on the transport line, the tram line, so you could get people to and from the school, such as nurses or staff, uh, to do that. And eventually the, the school issues, and uh, the war office issues an order in 1914 that it's going to take over the school. And the school is evacuated to the Northern Counties Hotel in Fort Rush, where it remained until 1946. So, you know, all the boys um, have their summers uh, up in Port Rush on the north coast, and the War Office takes over this amazing estate uh, to become a military hospital, which they thought would probably have around 400, 500 beds, and even expanded to 900 under, under quotes, crisis expansion. Now, when you think about that, the Royal Victoria Hospital at that time had around 530 beds in the late, late um, 30s, 1930s, it's a significant expansion, and this was one of four hospitals that the War Office wanted to uh, build in Northern Ireland, and it was known as the 24th British General Hospital. So what sort of work did the hospital do at Campbell College, and also did it begin to open its doors to maybe non-elite patients as well? It's, it appears to have actually functioned really as a military hospital, and it did a, a wide range of uh, therapeutic interventions. It, you know, in, in many ways, it becomes a small general district hospital. It dealt with malaria cases, uh, probably from soldiers who were fighting in the Mediterranean. Obviously, with air transport, uh, you can actually ship a lot of patients very, very quickly out of uh, war zones and fly them to uh, hospitals around the around Britain, uh, around uh, Europe, once that's conquered from 1944 onwards. So it becomes a, a way that you can actually get people, obviously with penicillin, you can stabilise wounds a lot quicker. So you can actually transport people further out. So it becomes a, a hospital which takes a wide range of patients. They have a neurology ward, they have respiratory diseases. They actually can seem, appear to conduct animal experiments. There is a uh, an animal house is constructed in 1944 by the, the laboratory department, which was probably the uh, pathology lab. So they were certainly doing a lot there, and they had a large outpatients uh, department, for instance, in 1944, and from July to September, the largest number of soldiers treated in the outpatient department was for VD. So I, I won't go into exactly why that was, but that seems to be, you know, something... Uh, that they were doing but it, it had a huge sort of throughput for instance from may to june 1944 they had an establishment of 451 beds in eight wards located in nissan huts these are sort of these purpose-built um wooden structures um that performed 662 operations so a huge throughput and you know for the next quarter they saw around 4,300 outpatients so a massive sort of output 
when you think about the size of the hospital and size of the medical uh, facilities that were in Northern Ireland at that time. But I think this predominantly remained a military hospital uh, treating military cases, and they mainly appear to be from the British and, and Dominion forces, uh, probably from the British Empire forces as well, not necessarily for American uh, servicemen who came into Northern Ireland from 1942 onwards. What challenges did the operation of the hospital face? It's um, it's interesting. It seems to be a hive of activity in many ways. And when you look at the war diaries, and these are sort of daily reports kept by the uh, head of the hospital, writing down what they got up to. And it seems that you know a lot of the times they had, uh, you know, they had staff dinners, or they had a court martial they had to attend to, or they went on regular inspections. So it seemed to be you know relatively. Uh, unexciting in many times but they do report some two major issues the first one is staff shortages they actually reported in 1944 that three wards were closed down because they couldn't actually get the the qualified staff to actually operate this and this becomes a problem throughout the hospital so you have to fly major elliot who was a neurologist from scotland over over to belfast on a regular basis to conduct clinics on, on a wednesday afternoon once every month so and the other challenge was that they actually suffered significantly during the Blitz in 1941, May 1941. Uh, a German bomber, which was coming over uh, uh, to bomb Belfast as part of the foray to the Luftwaffe, that's the German Air Force, launched in 1941, um, accidentally hit the, the hospital. Um, it, well, I don't think it was a deliberately uh, targeted thing, but a stray bomb hit one of the houses, I think the headmaster's office, uh, as it is today, killing 19 patients uh, and medical staff. And if you go into Stormont, if you, if you know Stormont uh, Hill, which is the Parliament building, there is a bomb crater which still exists in, within Stormont Hill, and it's surrounded. And that may well have been from the same aircraft that dropped the bombs on um, Camel College. They were probably released early. Uh, and again, obviously bombing at that time was a, a very imprecise uh, thing. And it, so it wasn't a deliberate attempt, though technically you could argue the hospital was a military uh, target. What's happened to the hospital at the end of the war? The end of the war, the hospital is um, was ordered to close in October 1945, and was 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 uh, directed to move out. The whole sort of 24th hospital was sent down to Moyer and County Down when it was eventually um, dismantled and disbanded. And the school returned, um, the boys returned from Portrush, and they sort of come to find a, a place, to say, not in particular good repair. For instance, the uh, parquet flooring in the main hall actually had been worn out by uh, constant military cleaning. And a lot of the dormitories have been damaged and they actually uh, levied a bill to the war office for £33,000, which is about £1.4 today. Thank you. And, and just to conclude, where, where can people learn more about your work and Campbell College's history? You can learn more about my work. I've got various websites called kensingtons.org.uk, or I do a podcast called the Combat Morale Podcast, which is coming at the time of the recording. I have no uh, episodes. You can listen to me on the Mentioned in Dispatches website on the Western Front Association um, under the uh, under the Western Front Association brand. And uh, finally, you can learn more about Campbell College in the war by looking at Keith Haynes' history of the school. Thank you, Tom, for a fascinating podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.